Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. to the projection booth i'm your host mike white back in the booth is ms sam deegan hello also joining us is ms kat ellinger hello this is what we call a twofer ladies and gentlemen we're going to be discussing two films by andre shulowski third part of the night and the devil first up third part of the night which stars leszek teleshinsky Thank you, as Mikhail, a man whose family is wiped out at the beginning of the film, putting him on the path of becoming a secret agent, as well as the subject in a creation of a vaccine for typhus. Again, this is a Zulowski film, so my spoiler warning really doesn't apply here. Anything we say might actually help elucidate this somewhat cryptic film. So there. So Kat, when was the first time you saw Third Part of the Night, and what did you think, ma'am? This was like down to our friends at Second Run DVD because they put out a lovely DVD release of it. It's just fucking bonkers. I love it. And seem to consistently talk about it. You know, like we've been doing all the Czech films like The Fifth Horseman is Fear and, you know, the, the more surreal Czech films. It seems to come up, even though it's a Polish film, always seems to come up in those conversations. I'm not going to say I immediately got the film. It took a few watches, and I'm not sure I completely understand it now, even after we've already podcasted on it and I'm writing a book on Zhuwowski. You know, it's just one of those amazing films that you can just keep diving into and finding all these new things. How about you, Sam? I want to say the first time I saw it was probably about five years ago. In New York, there was this mini retrospective of Zhuwowski's work, and 
they showed some then brand new restorations, which really frustratingly have still not gotten Blu-ray releases. And third part of the night was one of those. I was so obsessed with it that I decided to do this, which was insane. And I don't know how I survived it. But I decided to do this series for Diabolique where I wrote these long essays about every single Zhuavsky film. And it helped me to understand the films a little bit better. And through that process, this one was one that I wound up watching again and again, because of course, we'll talk about this, but it has these World War II themes. And I'm writing a book about post-war World War II themed films. It's definitely one of my favorites, not just of his films, but in general. This is another one where I watched the movie for the show just because I've been wanting to watch this and The Devil for a long time. I've barely scratched the surface when it comes to Zulowski's stuff, but whenever I watch them, I just go, oh my god, I love this. There are moments where I'm just watching the movie going, this is fantastic. I want so many more movies to be like this. But it's kind of like that fully stocked wine cellar where you've got all of these bottles down there you know are going to be great, but you don't want to just immediately rush through and start drinking like mad. Well, maybe these days you want to do that. But for me, I'm just like, no, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to save, you know the this next one for another special occasion so watching both third part of the night and the devil back to back twice in a row holy shit my mind was just blown and there were so many great things about both of these and i totally agree i'm sure that i didn't get so many parts of these movies because especially third part of the night the way that it plays with time just beautiful. And watching On the Silver Globe and Possession, they did not prepare me for either of these films, even though they play with some of the same uh, themes, especially the whole idea of doppelgangers. But good lord, third part of the night, I think that this might be creeping up into some of my favorite film territory, just because it was so wonderful to watch. It's definitely one of those films you can watch again and again, and it doesn't feel familiar, if that makes sense. Like, it doesn't become a comfort watch. But that's why it's so good, because even, like, watching it today, actually earlier today for this show, just to go over a few things, like, every time I watch it, it's just, like, a completely different experience, because I just find new layers and just, oh, it's just such a sublime film. Well, they both are. Although I have to say watching them this time around as a double feature and sort of revisiting these two, it makes me kind of sad that Zhuavsky didn't use Teleshinsky more because he's so perfect in both of these films, but especially in Third Part of the Night. He's just so haunted in a way that I also think it gives it a little bit of a different context to watch it in our current sort of quarantine situation yes. where where <laughs> yes. everyone is so isolated. Definitely did kind of parts of it felt strangely triggering just considering we're watching it in lockdown and but also uplifting as well. Well, yeah, when he is saying, you were in contact with my blood, I need to get you a vaccine. I'm like, okay, yeah, I can really feel for that right now. Yeah, and I think that is one of the parts, and I don't want to skip ahead, although because there's no real 
hard and fast chronological order to the events, then maybe skipping ahead doesn't apply. But that's one of the things about this film that's the hardest to understand if you watch it totally cold with no understanding of context. You like you don't really necessarily get what's going on with the lice. But the super horrifying thing is that it's based on historical events where they were basically testing out viral contagion in the form of typhus as warfare on this Polish Jewish ghetto. He doesn't really hit you over the head with any of that as exposition, but it's like the more of that kind of stuff that you learn and then rewatch the film, it somehow becomes more horrifying. When we did our original podcasts on it, I just became obsessed with that lice feeding thing because it's so fucking horrific. And just the way that he shows them is, well, I know we're skipping ahead, but in close up and they're all in that little thing, writhing around. Um, and it's possibly, I mean, people talk about possession and it's his quote unquote horror film. Yeah, this is a horror film too. But third part of the night and the devil, they're both horror films as well. Not, probably not consciously genre, but I'd say all three of those do use horror. Lots of body horror, lots of Kafka-esque type horror. These two are less accessible than Possession. Like The stories are harder to grasp, and there's definitely more theater of cruelty elements that if you don't have any context for that, you might watch this and be frustrated because you don't understand what's going on. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And they do, even though they have like Mike said, some of the same themes of most of his films, just watching them as a double bill, which I don't think I've ever done before, it just really struck home to me how similar those two films are and how they stand out in his filmography because then he goes to France and does that most important thing, Love, which is, you know, sets him on his track for his more hysterical romantic films. And I class Possession as one of those rather than these first two films, which, like you said, they have this Kafkaesque, very Eastern European sort of horror to them. And so, and that's why I always seem to compare them to The Tenant and, like I said, The Fifth Horseman is Fear. They seem to fit into that category of kind of horror, but, but not horror as Westerners know it. I can't believe someone else mentioned The Tenant before me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's like a siren going off somewhere. <laughs> but I always put those three together because they have that same paranoia. Everybody's suspicious of everybody else and, and watching everybody else. And when somebody comes into the narrative, you don't know whether to trust them or not. That strange sort of atmosphere, the tenant has it in the fifth horseman's fear has the same thing. It's this, and it, and it is horror, but a very specific Eastern European type of horror, not like our commercial genre horror here. The sad part is that that list is so small because after most of those, and the, certainly the tenant comes a little later and Polanski made it in France, but it's such a frustratingly small list because, you know, Zhuavsky was pretty much driven out after this. And so I think the sort of Soviet impulse to stamp out any kind of genre film, it's like, what would we have had in addition to this? 
Well, you talked about the lack of exposition, and that's one of the things that makes these films very confusing upon first glance. That and there are no signals to tell you, maybe other than one, that you are moving from the past to the present. And I mean, or even the future, it's really tough to tell. But if you're not watching what Mikael is wearing, that seems to be the biggest thing for me. He wears an overcoat when it's more what I would call the present. He doesn't wear an overcoat when it's the past. And there are also little clues as far as seeing his son seems to also be a thing that will say we are introducing the past. But if you're not paying attention to what Michael is wearing or Mikael is wearing in this movie you're going to be really confused and just be like, well, when is this? Because there are also parallels between what had happened in the past and then what happens in the present, especially when it comes to, I mean, again, we've got these doppelgangers of, we've got Helena in the past and Marta in the present. And then them both having these spouses that Mikkel, he's almost like the third wheel for both Helena and her husband, and then also the third wheel for Murda and her husband. Yeah, it's a lot. It The first time you watch it, it's genuinely dizzying. You almost need to listen to a podcast like this or read something to figure out what's going on unless you can commit to watching it two or three times. One of the things that I find infuriating about reading Academia based on Chowski is this insister. Sorry, I'm going to go off on one now. It's okay. I'm giving you your soapbox. But this isn't something we covered on the other podcast because it hadn't dawned on me at that point, but it's something that d- just dawned on me today, actually. This insistence of, of trying to place Chowski in some sort of box in Polish cinema. So you get these essays and they're kind of circular because they're like, is he part of this movement or is he part of that movement? Well, he wasn't part of anything. And if I had to put him close to anyone, I'd say Polanski was somebody else who went away and worked outside of Poland. Yeah, or like Skolomowski or something. Yeah, so, and these were people that worked in genre and it's almost as if they have this... You rarely see like horror brought up or this, well, he was working in certain genres, like he did take on action, obviously romance, melodrama, like all these lowbrow genres that are like in conflict with being an art house. So they like recognize him as art house, but then he's like doing stuff like horror or he's doing stuff like a crazy action film or just being completely unashamedly melodramatic, which is like the antithesis, which I love. It's just like a big fuck you. But this insistence that they have to try and put him in a box in some sort of movement or part of something when he really wasn't. I really don't think he was like a loose connection to someone like Polanski. I think they were both romantics. But other than that, I don't think he was part of anything. So you end up with all this writing on him that goes in these weird circles of like, well, maybe he's this, but then no, and maybe he's that. And then no, it's like, just stop doing that. Can you not just accept that he was somebody who came out of Poland, he did have certain political views and certain ph- philosophical views, but he wasn't consciously art house and he wasn't, you know, he was using parts of other cinema 
And I think he was quite against like things like the French New Wave and stuff like like collecting people anyway, wasn't he? Kind of rejected everything. He thought they were all idiots. Yeah, he like rejected. I mean, he would have probably read some of those essays and just laughed because it's like, stop doing that. Just accept that his films are very unique and very, very personal. Like, even though they're kind of visceral and confusing, they're also incredibly personal films. He's one of the most personal filmmakers. I put him next to someone like Fellini, because within all that emotion, you get him. That he based so much of this movie on his father's life, and that he cast his own wife as the wife of the main character. I mean, these are very, very personal films for him. Yeah, in a way, he also reminds me of Rivette in the sense that his films play with sort of narrative structure, they play with time, they're super personal, and they often have a lot to do with theater and drama and literature, and he puts all of these references in, not in a way that somebody like Peter Greenaway puts, you know, references to paintings in his films, but I get the sense that the references he uses and their references to Hamlet and to Shakespeare in both of the films that we're talking about, but he does it in a way where it seems like he put those references in because it meant something to him personally. I think it's just his obsessions. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. His loves in, in, in a lot of ways, not that stylistically they weren't the same, but very much like Barofchak. He's like another Polish director working in France later on. Just this idea of just bringing in all the things that you love that come from art and literature, not making some sort of intellectual statement. And I think that's the thing that fucks with these academic who want to box everything and give everything a theory and a name is they forget that some film can just be very human and it can be very personal and it's not making an intellectual statement it's just a filmmaker putting everything that they are I mean, it frustrates me about people that write about Fellini in this way as well because that's just their way of communicating like everything that they are and, and, and I just see him as someone like that or even someone like John Roland did the same thing like, I'm not saying stylistically you can compare them but it's just this very personal, you know, I love Shakespeare, I love this drama, I love this 
story and so they're bringing that in just as an artist rather than saying well I forgot I watched the extras on the interview on the second run third part of the night it's thoughts on uh, Terence Malick just crack me up <laughs> I totally agree with you especially when it comes to people writing about his films it's in a way I think it's a waste of time to be overly analytical and mm. say, you know, where does this belong in film history? It, it's like, what does it mean in a literal way is less important than how does it make you feel? And both of these, well, especially third part of the night are just so devastating. Let's talk a little bit about the lice, because the first time I watched this movie, they bring up lice way earlier than you actually see the lice or know what the hell's going on, which I found to be absolutely fascinating that I think they mentioned lice the first time. So we start off with this really bucolic scene of all of these outdoor shots. And we have this voiceover from Helena and she is reading the book of revelation. And that's where we're getting third part of the night from is from the book of revelation. Now we come to the blowing of the fourth trumpet, and I'm reading verse 12, and in my translation. And the fourth angel blew the trumpet, and the third part of the sun was smitten, third part of the moon, and the third of the stars, in order that a third part of them might be darkened, and the day did not shine for the third part of it, and the night in like manner. Within moments, she is hit in the head by these soldiers, these Nazi soldiers, who I didn't realize they were Nazis because they don't play up the swastika very much. They come in on horseback, or one comes in, bops her on the head. Meanwhile, Mikael and his father are off in the forest, and then they get to witness all of this, as well as uh, the son, Lukash, who runs to his mother, and we get to see the mother, the son, and I'm guessing it's the father's wife, Mikael's mother, all slaughtered. Then we suddenly move to the city and Mikael's back and he's just like, hey, grabs his friend Oleg, hey, sign me up. I want to go back to feeding the lice. And you're just like, what the hell is he talking about? What is this lice thing? And there are so many mentions of lice throughout this. And I think it's like, what, 45, 50 minutes before you actually see the first louse in this movie. And then it becomes this horrifying thing of and like you said it's based on real life where it is all of these people that are feeding lice in order to try to develop a vaccine for typhus and all of the shots of all of these things that they are going through it's so rich ritualistic and call me crazy but i was reminded so much of the tefillin the uh the Jewish ceremony of wrapping your arm and having the box on your head with the, I think there's a, a piece of the Torah in the, uh, the thing that you put on your head just because they wrap these looks like leather or something around their legs and then put these little boxes underneath that strap so that they have the lice side down so they can feed on these people through these little screens. It was horrifying. They are just so gross, but I, like you, I just find them fascinating. I mean, it's part of the history, I guess, that he wanted to tell, like his personal story about his family and what they went through and how they had to survive. And I think he said in the interview I just mentioned, you know, it's part of the war story that's not told. 
So that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to tell his story, his family's story of what they had to do to survive. But the fact that people had to descend to those levels of depravity just to get by, I find it like simultaneously like gross, but also really fascinating that people were put in those situations. And then they have these surreal scenes where that woman's playing the piano and they're like, playing cards and if that was me i'd be rocking in the corner frothing like i just it's it's amazing they're having philosophical discussions they're talking about authors they're talking about proust and uh, i can't remember the other one sitting around this table and arguing and having all of these conversations it's just like what the hell and then yeah each it feels like Mikael keeps moving up in the ranks that he is first it's lice without any disease and he moves to the lice with disease and then he actually moves into the room where they're pulling the lice apart and getting the blood out of them and it's just it's beautiful macro photography and i was so amazed to see that some of these were actual like really super close up and then the camera would move back and also give you Mikael as well so it wasn't just macro photography the cinematography in this movie is fantastic oh it was balzac was the other one I don't want to get on my World War II soapbox for too long, but what frustrates me about so many movies, so many mainstream movies about people's war experiences is that they're really sentimental, they're emotionally exploitative, they tell these sort of very morally black and white stories about, you know, the evil Nazis did this, and the heroic resistance members did that in response. But to me, the more interesting films are ones like The Third Part of the Night and, to a different degree, The Devil, which is also sort of a war film. But because it shows you those scenes that you were just talking about, about people who their brains have taken over and gone into survival mode and they just do whatever they have to, but he shows it almost like body horror in some scenes, but also I totally agree with what you were saying about the sort of ritual aspects of the rapping. And at such a young age, because he wasn't very old when he made this film, he managed to put all of these historical and biographical elements together without making it feel preachy. Like, and now I'm telling you this story based on history. Like there's none of that. It's just you 100% get the sense of how it felt to live that. He grew up basically next to one of the largest Jewish ghettos in the area. And all of those people, for the most part, were sent to Belzec and killed if they didn't die of the typhus that was growing in that lab. So it's like he could have told us that and yanked on our heartstrings, but he does it in such a different, more elegant way. We talked about this recently when we did our chat on Distant Journey and we've talked about it in re- regard to The Fifth Horseman is Fear as well and some of the other Czech timber films that we've covered, uh, which was something that came out of the Czechny wave as well. The reason these films were seen as so subversive is because they didn't use sentiment. They painted people in shades of grey and showed people in survival mode doing what they had to do so they got rid of the the kind of 
hero. And I know we, you know, in Britain, we didn't have it half as bad, but the British films are just as bad, like the war films. It's all about, you know, the home front and everybody's got rosy cheeks and, you know, is helping their neighbours. And, you know, it's not always like that. And I think that was one of the reasons why, you know, some of these Czech films got banned. The Cremator is another one because it shows somebody who uses uh, in Czechoslovakia, gets involved with the Nazis and uses that to further their social position. So these, even though this wasn't banned like the devil was, it did come up with issues with against the censors initially because it just totally went against especially under communism where they, they had this nationalized kind of we're together and we are strong and heroic it totally went against all of that in the way that some of the Czech films did and so it was seen as dangerous which wouldn't necessarily register to us here now you know all these years later just how dangerous it was to make films like that I can't believe that this wasn't banned. Maybe it's because it doesn't come out and explicitly state things, but you get the sense that joining the resistance, which is what he's basically trying to do, is hopeless. And the problem with writing about a lot of Soviet films made that are about World War II is they want to do the same thing as those mainstream English language films I was talking about where they want their own citizens to be very, to be portrayed as very heroic. And they're all very nationalistic because they're towing that sort of party line that you just mentioned. And this film really doesn't do that. And I think it reflects what was actually going on. I mean, yes, of course there was a Polish resistance and sometimes they were effective but they were also so brutally repressed by the Nazi occupation that it blows my mind that this got past the censors because it's clearly a film about the brutality of occupation. That the leader of the resistance is blind just kind of tells you so much that he is just so useless. And the only times we see him, he's spouting out dogma. And then I think it's the second or third, it's the third time we see him, he's being dragged away by the Nazis. And again, I do like right on your point that they don't say that they're the Nazis, and I would be hard-pressed to even find a swastika in this film. It is not like this is, you know, hey, this is World War II that this is happening. It feels so contemporary, to the point where the first time I watched it, I kept saying to myself, what year is this? I'm looking at their clothes, and I'm just like, I can't tell if this is now, or if this is 10 years before, or 20 years before, or when this was set. And finally, it was, it dawned on me that, oh, these are probably Nazis, but I can say that about so many people these days. But that's what makes it so effective. It's a weird thing they do with um, the Fifth Horseman is Fear, and that is, wow, you don't actually, it's like this sly little way of saying, well, these are probably Nazis, but they leave it ambiguous. And the Fifth Horseman's Fears does that, like you don't see a swastika. When we did that episode on it, we were talking about how they have these leaflets and posters, but there's nothing to identify them as strictly German. So it's almost like you're to assume that it's that, but it could also be something else. And I just love that. 
it's just really such a sly, subversive way to slide things. And well, they didn't always slide under, but some of them did. This one did, thankfully. It reminds me of the opposite of something like Breck's distancing effect, where when you make a film about something historical that has happened and you start it off, you know, either with one of those little sort of cards that says, you know, one day in 1942 or some, some bullshit like that. If you make it immediately clear where and when everything is set, I feel like when you watch a film like that, it allows you to distance yourself from those people because that's not you. You're not living in that existence. But I think it's so important that he doesn't do that here. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who have, well, I don't know how many people have actually seen this film, but if you had no context going in and you didn't even necessarily know that this was supposed to be part of Poland, like part of actual historical Poland, maybe you would never even think that those were Nazis, which is why it's so subversive because it could also be about Soviet occupiers too. Well, when the friend says, remember when they came and took away all the professors, I'm just like, wow, that sure sounds like the cultural revolution to me. This whole idea of him going and subjecting himself to these lice, we should say that it is each step that he takes getting more and more into dangerous territory, he gets more and more ration cards. And he's using these ration cards for this woman, Marta, who we actually see her give birth to this baby on screen, which is... It's upsetting. Yeah, it's a little upsetting. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of screaming. I almost timed how long the birth scene took because I didn't realize until I rewatched it just how long that scene was. But Marta, we should say that she is the spitting image of Helena. Same actress, Zulowski's wife. Mal Grosetta Brownick. He is running away from the Nazis, whoever, at the beginning or near the beginning of the film. And it's this, it reminds me almost of like a Melville film. It reminds me kind of the the red circle. I guess it's the trench coats and the hats are very Melville to me. No, it's totally that. I think it's a deliberate thing. Like when I said earlier about him using certain genre that isn't part of this canon, like more, and there are definitely aspects of like, crime films in this which is just makes it so much more amazing that he wasn't afraid to just throw in these other elements that i guess other more intellectual filmmakers would consider uncouth or too popular or too lowbrow whatever parts of it do look like a noir or a thriller with those like i'm pretty sure they didn't dress like that in world war Two, did they I barely see the guys who are after him, which makes it even scarier because it's like, where are these bullets coming from? And all of a sudden he's trying to help his friend and his friend's chest starts exploding. All these squibs are going off. I'm just like, holy shit, this is really intense. And he runs and he runs and he runs. So you did a lot of running. Makes it into this building and he's running up the stairwell and all of a sudden my mind... Hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Flex and it goes, these look like the exact same stairs from Possession. They probably aren't, but they sure did look like it. It's this... Sp- not spiral, but square staircase as he's going up and up and up and he hides in the shadows and another man comes in. He's wearing the exact same coat, exact same hat. And the people that were pursuing him shoot this guy. And we won't find out until much later in the film, but the man had the exact same face that Mikal had, or at least that's what he sees. And when he sees the wife, he sees her as Helena. And it's so bizarre because he says it several times and there's a nun in the film. And we'll talk about nuns a lot more in Diablo, I'm sure. But the nun is just like, no one else sees this but you, but yet we see it as the audience, which I thought was so clever that we're the ones who are seeing through his eyes and we're seeing the same actress, the same woman playing this other wife, playing Marta. And I love that. I love that we are in his headspace as he sees her and then immediately is just like, what is going on? You are the spitting image of my wife. He's saying that to this woman as she's giving birth. And so he immediately wants to protect her and try to kind of make amends for his wife dying and by protecting Marta. Guilt is such a, a major theme in a lot of his films. People feeling guilty, people trying to find redemption, or just feeling bad. Like it's something that he just seems to return to time and time again. People trying to make amends for things or seems to be one of his, his key themes, like across his films. Because of that sort of sense of guilt and responsibility turned in on itself in regards to a couple, it really seems like the most obvious precursor to possession because you have those sort of doubles at the end of possession. It's like they're being attacked by their own doubles basically. And that sort of happens here. But to your point about the staircase, if you watch all of his films, there's at least one of those staircase shots in every single film, including the two early short films. So he's real into those. Weren't you going to do a video essay on that? I really want to. You still haven't done it. (laughs) (laughs) Because when I wanted to do one, I had no idea how to even go about making a video essay, but I feel like I probably should because the man loves a good shot of a staircase. He really does. And even though Mikael is going up, it feels like he's descending. You know, it feels like he's descending into this world of madness, this world where he will mistake people for other people, that he is just going off the ledge at this point. Yeah, and I think we haven't talked about him yet, but Andrzej Yaroshevich, who uh, does most of his cinematography, or at least does some camera work, has this like magical way of making it where you watch a scene and you know what you're watching, but it's almost like an optical illusion where it makes you sort of lose your sense of place. 
This is not a film to ever watch on mushrooms. I'm just going to say that. He was so good, though, because he would use things like handheld cameras, like before Steadicam. The giant, like, 100-pound cameras that he would carry around himself. Oh, yeah. This is 1971, and he's carting around these cameras. It was just crazy to see these handheld shots. And when things spin and you just get, like, really confused and dizzy just, yeah and they so were having to, he was having to do that come up with ways to do that like by hand it's incredible like even if you sit like his camera work in silver globe is just like jesus christ the man is a genius i got to meet him last year at the silver globe and shake his hand and like i i don't really do the fan thing but it was one of them moments where i was just like a total idiot like oh my i just thought this is and he just seemed really weirded out that you know someone was acting like he was this huge like importance (laughs) oh you're you're not alone he and ajay korzynski who does most of the or like maybe like half of the scores for jowevsky's films they were there at the restorations that i saw like five years ago and i was so nervous Korzynski is like Polish Santa Claus. Like he's got this giant mustache and these like big rosy cheeks and just seems to smile at everything. But Andrei Yaroshevich just just looked kind of like, you're all idiots. Why am I here? (laughs) I think they just find it really strange that these films that didn't really make much of a fuss outside Poland, like all these decades later. Now all of a sudden people care. Yes. It must be weird. He was just kind of like, what the fuck is going on here? He also is such a skinny man that I don't know how he lugged that camera around. It's crazy because they had like their budgets were so small as well. And they were coming up with completely new techniques because, I mean, people don't really talk about the camera work much in Jurowski's films. But uh, they should. Talk more about the theme, but all of them have just this very dynamic experimentation, not in the way the Czech New Wave were doing it. It's something different about it that feels more immediate. It's not like this, and I love the Czech New Wave, but they do this more showing-off, stylized, you know, montage. And I'm thinking of something like Daisies. It's just, like, really over the top. Whereas with this, you don't notice it so much because you're drawn into what's happening. It's only when you step back and you start thinking how the hell, like Mike was saying about the lice, how they get this macro photography in, but then also they show you the rest of the seat. Like, and when you start to think, hang on, how did they do that? That's when you start to realize how incredible it all was. Yeah, it's so ridiculous. And it's something that feels like... He didn't always have the same cinematographer, but I do think Yaroshevich was at, at least like for most of the films was on set holding the camera. I mean, at, like as a camera operator, but even something later like La Femme Publique, which has some of the craziest cinematography, it's like it's not just that the camera is capturing people move in a frenzied manner. It's that the camera is like in unison with them. And that was Sasha Virni, who's, you know, a really 
talented and well-known French cinematographer, but it just feels like Yaroshevich and Zhuavsky either developed their style together. It just is so organic and so emotional in a way that cinematography usually isn't. I get what you mean. It's like everything that he does, it feels very personal. And I think if I had to, talking of putting him next to Polanski, there's a lot of uh, parallels to someone like Bergman in that respect as well, especially when it comes to themes of madness, that you get actually drawn into this world. Like Mike was saying, that you see things from Mikhail's point of view and everyone else is saying, no, she doesn't look like your wife you know like so you start to think hang on a minute i'm actually in this guy's head and then the camera positions you in there as well it's not done in a hey look what we can do we're really slick it's done in this very personal i'm going to bring you into this world and give you this experience and i think bergman also did that very well in a lot of his films as well where, you know, you're in this situation, like you're watching this film, but you actually feel like you're there in that person's madness. And there's very few people that can actually pull that off, you know, because they always have to give you the nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Like if that was an American film, you then have to see, oh, this is what these people really look like. You know, they'd have to show you that. They'd have to do the fucking fight club or something. <laughs> it's like, you know, because I can't trust people to think, hang on a minute, you know, maybe, maybe they don't look anything like these people, you know. Uh, and if that was like a Western film, they'd have to give you too many clues. So I just think he's incredible in, in that respect, in that he just brings you in. It's funny that you are sort of drawing these connections to Polanski and to, you know, other filmmakers who focus on madness, because one of the only American filmmakers who I think has ever done anything close to this is when Wells made the trial, which he had to go to France to make, because to your point, Americans don't want to see films like this. And it just seems to be more about feeling than the importance of narrative. It's definitely a European thing because you see it even in Eurocult film where feeding and experience is placed, like even in European genre film, feeding and experience is placed over like narrative logic or obeying some sort of convention rules. And then you get people trying to unwrap that who aren't open to it. And they just, they're like, what does this mean? And why wasn't that explained? It's like the whole world today needs a fucking video to explain a trailer to them. The ending of Black Widow <laughs> Some explained. like really obvious film, such and such, explain. And it's like, why do you need that? <laughs> just get into the experience and then just experience it. Like, even if it's uncomfortable, it makes you feel alive and it makes you feel connected to that person or those people that made that film, even though it was decades ago. Like Mike said, it could be today. You feel completely connected to them, even though things don't make sense. And even though time flip flops around and it doesn't matter because you're there and it's immediate and it's, and it's an experience and you're totally connected to. I think once you step back and start going, well, why is he wearing that different coat? And what, you know, then it's ruined. You can't engage with it in that way. 
Sam, if you really want clicks, you're going to have to make another here's the timeline of primer video rather than this staircase video. No one's going to watch that. If I want clicks, I'll just post a bunch of selfies and giggle and hold up VHS tapes. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I don't give a shit about that. This is what I'm wearing on quarantine day 15. (laughs) Yes, here's my possession. And I do have a possession shirt. So I, I could I could theoretically do this. But because I don't hate myself, I'm not going to. <laughs> You're gonna have to tear the neck so you get some real good cleavage going on there too. <laughs> Thank you for that very important and useful tip. <laughs> I know you guys haven't watched Babylon Berlin yet, which I keep telling you to watch because it's literally the best thing I've seen. Tomorrow night when I give platelets, I'll be watching that on Netflix. But that is a real. So I'm not going to give away the plot because you guys haven't seen it and and. People listening might not have seen it. Uh, but it's a detective show, German, uh, set as the uh, Hitler rises to power. That's the thing in the background. But mainly it's a detective show. So they like investigate porn and all sorts of weird, sordid stuff. But the main detective in it, this guy called Detective Rat, he has this reoccurring, surreal... I don't even know if it's a flashback or what, because it hasn't been explained yet, where he is running down this corridor, screaming. And I swear to God, that has been... And it reoccurs throughout, especially through the first season. There's been three seasons now. But it pops up again in the later seasons. Uh, It just comes in, like, unexplained. I swear to God, that was influenced by Third Part of the Night. That bit when he's running through the corridors is just so similar I know it's really trite, but the comparison I kept thinking of while I was watching this in Diablo was thinking of David Lynch and just things like the um, Patricia Arquette character in Lost Highway. You know, is she the same woman? Is she a different woman? Are we seeing this through somebody else's eyes? Those kind of things. I know that this comparison has been made before, probably by a lot smarter people, but I'm just like, I'm sure that Lynch has to be a fan of Zhuowski, just watching his stuff and seeing like so many similarities between the two. I get the parallel, and I have no doubt that Lynch is a Zhuowski fan, as I think anyone with good taste should be, but... I have this sort of weird feeling that Zhuowski would probably hate Lynch's film. It seems like he would hate a lot of people's films. I love that I keep reading about these Polish filmmakers. Last week I read about Polanski. This week I'm reading about Shulovsky. And both of them are taking pot shots at the whole dogma movement. I love it. I love that they're just these like cranky old men who are just like, fuck you. We did this stuff. When we had no fucking lights, we made movies. You guys, you have fucking lights. You Get your shit together. Today. Make a fucking movie. Oh, yeah. Get off my lawn and just quit looking at my movies. Well, I think there's also something and I'm going to struggle with articulating this, so bear with me for a second. I feel like what we've been talking about all along is this idea that Zhuavsky wants to get across a feeling more so than a specific story. And I think he really was opposed to people being weird for the sake of being weird. And I don't think he liked what we could call experimental filmmaking. Like, I don't necessarily think he would have liked Daisies. And we would have to ask Daniel Bird to confirm this if we, you know, want the actual answer. But I just get the sense with somebody like Lynch, 
Like there are times when Lynch is able to tell a great melodramatic story that makes you have a lot of feelings in response. Like there are definitely moments in Twin Peaks where that happens. And I like a lot of his films, but I feel like in a way they're kind of philosophically opposed to what Zhuavsky is trying to do, where Zhuavsky is not interested in this sort of Burroughs cut up version of culture that comes across as avant-garde. He cares more than anything about sort of authenticity. And I think that's why so much of what he does borrows, as Kat was talking about earlier, borrows from all different kinds of genres and reference material. It's sort of anything that helps him tell the emotional side of the story. So he's not opposed to using horror references, or I mean, something that we haven't talked about, but the most important thing is to love. It has all of these references to Euro horror and like B grade horror movies and porn and stuff that you would never think to see in a melodrama. I get the Lynch comparison and I don't think you're wrong. I just think Zhuavsky himself would say, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. He was amazing though. Okay. Round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Listening to him in commentaries and listening to interviews with him because he literally hated everything. Except for Dostoevsky. He hated everything except Dostoevsky. <laughs> like, he hated Spielberg. His views on Spielberg are just sublime. Like, I grew up on Spielberg. I love all those 30s, but he fucking hated that. And then he makes a film like Mad Love, which is like his riff on an action film. And it's just totally bonkers. Um, and I just, I just think he was happy to use elements of genre, but he didn't really subscribe to anything that was necessarily like deliberate. He just would use whatever he needed to get his point across. So when you get asked, like, you know, were you influenced by it? Like, I love it when to talk about that most important thing, love or is to love, when Daniel Bird asks him about melodrama and he's like, no, this is just what we do in Europe. And he's like, no, it's not. <laughs> and, and then he, and then he calls Douglas Sirk disgusting. Which is, it's the best. It's like you clearly are doing the same thing. And it's like, you know, so what do you think about, you know, this is obviously, uh, no, this is just what we do in Europe. It's called emotions. <laughs> 
that's one of my favourite tracks, though, because he calls, and I love Fabio testing, but he calls him a moron on it. <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah, at least if you have the opportunity to buy any of the releases with commentaries and most of them are through They're treasures yes they're, they're like, absolute treasures i have them ripped as audio files thanks to our friend bill who has been a guest on this podcast before and i listen to them the way that people listen to podcasts because he just is he's like grumpy but delightful at the same time and was such like he read constantly he watched films all the time just like you know spoke i think five different languages and would read a text in its original language is just this like fount of cultural information but so grumpy when pressed to talk about it and totally unpretentious i think that's what i love about him and to go back to what you were saying about lynch i'm I'm probably going to get lynched myself here but i'm not (laughs) a fan of david lynch i like some of his films but i generally find him quite pretentious (laughs) no and i think that's what i I was trying to say (laughs) sort of i went through the first like lot of twin peaks and everyone was watching it at school and we all started off like it was a big thing like everyone was watching it and it was like oh my god this is amazing it just fucking goes on and on and there's no fucking point to it i remember when i saw the last episode i was just so like what why have i just invested like you know so much of my life in this (laughs) fucking log woman or whatever and uh, dancing dwarfs and i just sorry i'm going so many people on the internet um, are mad at you right now (laughs) (laughs) boo Bow down to her if you want. Bow to her. Bow to the queen of slime, the queen of filth, the queen of putrescence. Boo! Boo! The thing about Schumowski is he was totally anti any of that. He was such a cultured, like, educated man, but he never seemed like he had an agenda... Like when you hear him talk, him and Daniel together on those commentaries are amazing because you can just sense their friendship and. Yeah, there's also like a sort of a master and a pupil thing going on where you f- you feel like he's like schooling Daniel sometimes. Like we've talked about this before. <laughs> and he has such a great sense of humor, I think, which might not necessarily come over in his films, but there are moments of humor in those films that are just you know, under the surface, but he was never, ever pretentious about it. And I think that's why he was reluctant to give anything a meaning, because I think sometimes, and I think this is something he said himself, when filmmakers start to explain themselves, they can sound full of themselves. So it's just like this really down-to-earth, you know, made these very, very dark films, but just this very down-to-earth, very brilliant dry sense of humor i think he was incredible and just totally against any of that oh well i'm gonna make this huge uh intellectual statement like annabella would about the love witch and you're just like sorry <laughs> but you're just like oh come on you know so he was kind of a- against that i think um even doing the commentaries he refused like when daniel asks him about themes sometimes he lets daniel go off on a th- on a theory and then he goes well if you think that's, that's what your it theory means. So he yeah, does this, like, great. little laugh 
But I think also you you made a really good point that he has a great sense of humor, but it's something that as a filmmaker he grows into. And I think you start to see it more in his later films. But I hope that it's something we remember to talk about when we fully move to the devil, because the devil has some hilarious moments. Well, Sam, you talked about Korzynski and the music in both of these films, both Third Part and The Devil. It does connect on that emotional front, and it feels so much like it was Korzynski and a band watching these movies and riffing. It doesn't feel like these are songs. It feels like they are like almost tone poems or something. Just like, here we go with this electric guitar, with this, with that. Which was interesting, too, because there are actual moments of diegetic sound. You mentioned the woman with the organ. We've got Mikel and his father who plays the violin. And Mikel trying to play the violin with one arm for a minute. That was pretty hilarious. Because he had just been shot maybe the day before. Actually, I think he's still bleeding from that wound. So that moment when his father reaches down and has all the, the blood on his fingers. There's so much blood in third part of the night. Well, in pretty much everything that I've seen so far by Zulowski, but so much in this and so much in the, the devil that it is just astounding how much people bleed and leave their mark that way. His films in general. And not all of them are super bloody, but they're all very concerned with bodily fluids. Like, I would say the number one, the absolute number one fluid in his films is snot, because you constantly have people crying with snot running down their faces, and it's always some beautiful actress who you get the sense that he's kind of like trying to take him down a peg and show that, yes, you can be beautiful and feminine and portrayed in a story as a romantic interest, but at the same time you're human and you should be allowed to show this full range where sometimes you're vulnerable and you're ugly and you're... We haven't talked about it too much with this film and with the things that he does with Malgrazada, but... I think he gets accused of being misogynistic, which is one of those things that always makes my head explode. But he had such great range for his female characters. I don't think anyone wrote or directed female characters and actresses the way he did. Well, the thing that he did with women, and this is one of the th- I find this film's very feminine. And I don't know if this is the same for you, Sam, but... I find them easier to connect to on an emotional level because and maybe these two films aren't great examples, but from that most important thing, but they still have these same elements in them of, of women, but he understood how much women suffer. And if you think about in Western culture, how women are, I mean, we're allowed to cry, but it has to be this very kind of weak cry. And we're not supposed to get mad and we're not supposed to get aggressive. And it all has to be very polite. Yeah, dainty crying. No one cries daintily in his films. (laughs) And with his women, and it's specifically his women, because his, his male protagonists are often weirdly passive. Like Polanski's. Yeah, just weirdly passive. Whereas the women, they like shove, they spit, they scream, they turn red, their heads off, and they and they just bring out like all the feelings that you can often feel as a woman, but you 
you can't really express without being sectioned and showed that and you know when you just feel like fucking screaming at some bloke because he's an idiot and you know he i'm not going to say aloud because i think it was more collaborative than that but he gives women a space in his films to express this just really strong emotion and like you said, Sam, I, and I've seen this, you know, especially because of Isabel Jani and possession. You know, he pushed his actresses too far. He was a misogynist. Uh, he, he made them suffer. He would put, but I don't think it's that. I think they're very feminine films. They're very emotional. That emotion is often feminine and they're very powerful because he has those emotions. And I think women's emotions can be scary. I think Vera Hitalova said it actually when she was working in the Czech New Wave. She said she re- she wasn't getting any uh, room to maneuver, and she was coming up with all this uh, these problems, you know, getting her films produced. And she realised at one point the most powerful thing that she could do was cry in front of these male producers or whatever because they couldn't handle it. So she kind of weaponized her femininity and would cry because no one can stand a crying woman. And so we repress those emotions because they are uh, powerful. He does it with sexuality as well. I'm not saying these aren't really sexual films, but his later ones, when women are sexual, they're really fucking sexual. They're like primal. They're like absolutely wild. So I think he was very in tune with like a sense of femininity and women. And even though it's like portrayed in this kind of hysterical over-the-top, dramatic way that, that probably isn't that realistic. It's the emotion that comes through. Does that make sense? Like, it's, it just feels like a very feminine thing and a very powerful thing. That is definitely how I feel about it as well. And I think his films to watch as a woman are very therapeutic and cathartic and that's why he often reminds me so much of Rivette, or they sort of remind me of each other, is because they're both really concerned with working out difficulties in relationships on screen in this really therapeutic way that is totally divorced from normal cinematic realism. And while somebody like Rivette was interested in acting and performance and kind of theater history and theater dynamics. Zhuavsky does talk on occasion about his interest in performance, but for him, it comes less from a place where he's interested in, you know, the dynamics of, of acting as sort of an art, as a Western art form, but it comes more from this interest in shamanism he sort of talks about how he encourages that, that, that sort of collaborative thing that you mentioned, how he sort of encourages people to get out things that are buried within them in these performances. And it's always women. Although to your point, I think he's also not afraid to show male characters as being very emotional like they don't quite reach the heights that a lot of the female characters do. But Leszek Teleszynski in both of these films is somebody who we see he's hurt, he's grieving, 
He's trying to get revenge for things that are taken away from him, which I think is a more traditionally sort of masculine narrative. But he's shown to be in pain for most of the two films. And it's not a physical pain, even when he's literally been injured. It's this really deep emotional pain that I think is something you don't see a lot. He would do that with his male characters, and so it's like a softer kind of masculinity. He would often show men as very intuitive and sensitive, like Fabio Testi in that most important thing. He takes somebody who's like an icon of the Italian crime film, like a, like a, I think he described him as Tarzan, but he has him like, this mute sort of crying and in emotional pain and unable to talk about it. And, you know, just this like very sensitive character that goes completely against his type. In possession, the husband in possession is like the one who's suffering more in this like almost silence, this just, you know, so he did really interesting things with gender. I think that it's another thing that he doesn't really get credited for much, that he would just totally go against. I think people just look at his films and they look at possession. They say, oh, it's misogynistic. You know, what did he do to that poor actress? Bergman got beaten with the same stick as well. And I, I love Bergman for the same reason. I think Bergman's films can often be very, very feminine. So it's it's like this misunderstanding, the stuff that he did with gender was just incredible. There's a story inside of Third Part of the Night where it's this whole idea of Marta being so angry at Mikal for not standing up for himself. You know, you're talking about this whole engendering of, of people and just that he could have come out of the shadows and said, that's the wrong person. I'm the one that you're after. And the husband could have been saved. At least that's how she sees it. But he's like, no, they would have taken us both away. So you have her being angry at him, but then eventually starting to fall in love with him. He keeps going and seeing her at this convent. And I find it very interesting that the nun says that this is the same room that he was in before with his wife. So again, we have that mixture of time and this confusion of things that it's the exact same room that they had been in before and keeps going, keeps giving her more ration cards, keeps bringing her things. Eventually they do fall in love with each other, I think. And there's a moment where they are in bed together and that's where we have her laying in the bed with him and I love when then she, as Helena, comes out of the shadows and they have a conversation which seems to be in the past where they're talking about having children. And then he goes back into the bed and now they're back in the present. But I do have to ask you guys, because I feel very stupid. At one point right after that, he leans over and looks through the floor and there's it's glass and there's a hole through the floor and down below there's a man in a coffin do you know what the hell that was no but i love it (laughs) there's there's another thing that he loves to do throughout his films which is showing bodies in coffins we actually did a drinking game on a boris goodenough episode about it yes and got Uh, him really drunk (laughs) yeah there's this one scene it's like you know there's about 50 coffins like about 20 minutes in but the devil but there's so many people in coffins in the devil <laughs> and in uh that most important thing oh yes yes there and yeah <laughs> uh, don't even get don't get me started <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna get too excited now 
the thing with the like the where he sees his wife and stuff, he does something similar in Boris Goodenough where this guy keeps seeing his dead son and it's like these uh these ghosts but they're like born out of guilt. Well, it's like the dead father in The Devil, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, but it's definitely just visually a thing that he likes to do. I think to Kat's point, it's also an expression of that guilt theme. But my guess if there's any sort of bearing in logic is that particularly around this time, which, you know, is a horrifying thing that I think people are experiencing right now in Italy is because of the war situation and the occupation, if somebody died, you kind of had to keep them at home for a little bit until someone could come get them. Not to make this cheerful. The other question I have for you is, very shortly after that, he goes to... Because there's a lot of things that happen in very quick succession at the end of this film. There's that, there's the... What I think is his buddy selling out the resistance and his buddy being shot like a dog in the streets because we, he's about to go, Mikael, this is, is about to go down the street and go to Blind's place, the leader of the resistance. And this woman is walking and she's just like, don't go that way. Something bad is happening. So he walks with her for a little bit and then he comes back and sees Blind being taken away and he sees his buddy running away from that. And I'm thinking that he, sold out the resistance. I could be wrong. But then shortly after that, he goes and he goes back to his father's place. Miko goes to his father's place. And um, there's this whole discussion of the bloody trench coat that he brought over and that he put his father in danger. And he is tearing through this closet, trying to find the trench coat and throwing sheet music all over the place. Am I right in thinking that his father, who then starts speaking in Latin after Mikael leaves, is going to immolate himself? Because he sets the papers on fire, and the last time we see him, he's kind of masked behind fire. He's a typical Zhuowski dad, because when they do appear, they're often quite mad or not very fatherly. He just seems as insane as Mikael does. Like he's totally lost the plot. (laughs) <laughs> he does a weird thing with father figures and it doesn't come up very often but the father in that most important thing as well is a, a total weirdo uh it, it seems to because i know in real life he had a, a weird distance relationship from his own father and i don't know when fathers do come up in his films and it's not like a huge thing that he does i think they show up pretty often the dad in Cosmos is weird as well, actually. The oh, dad I in him. Cosmos. <laughs> I love him so much. He's super weird. Um, he, they're never like typical father. They're always like on the edge of a nervous breakdown or. And they're not supportive. Uh, corruption or, or they're not supportive and they're very, uh, like kind of self-absorbed or, or weird or so i think that's how it is in possession too i think yeah <laughs> it's just like so I, I think him setting himself or setting his flat on fire i don't really think it has that much significance to the narrative it just is one of these little reoccurring and it's interesting to watch his film and then you go on to his other films because you see things that get used Later on, like the the scene on the stairs is very much like possession. The boy 
dead son turning up is Boris Goodenough. It's weird how he reuses little bits later on. The father thing does pop up from time to time. And, you know, you have people when they have conversations with their fathers, they're just very abstract and not the sort of conversation you would expect somebody to be having with their father whatsoever. It shows up in this film and the devil like more than in some of the later films. But even in films like My Nights Are More Beautiful Than Your Days, you don't see the parents, but often when his characters talk about their families, it's either that their parents were weird or flat out abusive or not supportive or just like they don't feel like parents. They feel like here's this weird person who happened to be around. I know that feel. And then that moment when he goes to, I'm thinking it's the hospital, and he's trying to break the husband out because they've heard that Marta's husband is there. And he goes in and basically finds his body, finds his own body, like looks down and there's the husband's face and it's his face. I know that Zulowski did not like talking about Freud, but I was just like, this is the definition of uncanny, is when you find the dead man and he's got your exact same face. And then he gets chased by a group of one-legged men. All of these war veterans who are without limbs are chasing him. And it just becomes one of the most scary things I've ever seen in my life. Just him and then going through and finding all of these all of these bodies inside of these different little rooms and they all seem like they're tied up and it all seems like they have been tortured to death. I mean, at least that's my take on this thing. And there's that weird moment too, where he goes into a hall that we've seen before and we saw a woman walking down this hall and there's this all seeing eye above the doorway and he goes through that same doorway and it t- takes him exactly back to the beginning of the film. And we are taken back to Helena reading the book of revelation and these four horsemen standing outside of the doorway that we see blurrily through a window. All of those things happen so quickly. It's just amazing that that is how you're going to end this movie. And just it, takes my breath away every single time I watch it. See, Zhuowski can do it, but when David Lynch does the face thing, I just <laughs> annoys me. The circular thing isn't like seems to be quite unique to this film. But it goes back to what we were saying about the horror not horror thing. That last segment is totally in that area where something is so absurd and it is the sort of thing that you would read in Kafka. The, and um, so surreal it becomes so fucking horrific I think because we don't and we talked about this with Distant Journey we don't generally have those sensibilities in western literature or art because it's such a curious thing as well it becomes even more frightening because they didn't really have this grand horror tradition in Poland or Czechoslovakia but you did find these films like The Cremator, Being What Fifth Horseman Is Fear, that are kind of horror films, but they're not done in any convention that we'd understand them as a horror film. Though I do think you could make a case for this as being body horror. Everything you did, though, was very visceral, and it was all about the body and the emotions, wasn't it? Regardless of what genre he's working in. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages. 
This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Do you like horror movies? So do we. Fucks is the lie out. Yep. Because it's on out. She was great. Do you like American Horror Story? So do we. There are some butts. Yep. Pillins. Yep. Butt. Yep. Pillins. Butt. Yep. Pillins. It's over 90% cheek. That's your butt. You see the essence of the butt. Are you into vampires dancing in mesh tank tops? Us too. I was mesmerized by the mesh tank top and leather pants. Are you into high-minded film critique and discussion? Because we've got that. And it is beautifully filmed. Like, it really... Just the stark contrast of colors, like you said. Not your thing? How about a dick joke? His dick, dude. He put his yeah. dick in a fucking pig. Come on. We've also got one dude to give dude perspective. Zombie apocalypse is no time to have your head in the pussy clouds, Mickey. This is survival. <laughs> Thank you. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and subscribe to The Bloodlust, your go-to podcast for a classy broads and a token dude talking horror. I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh-huh. us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Oh, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards, in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us enjoying the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and, of course, SoundCloud.
Brett. <lacht> back and we're switching gears to talk about Zulawski's The Devil. It's the story of Jakob, a man who tried to kill the king of Poland. He's in jail at the beginning of the film, freed by a strange little man in a three-cornered hat who seems to be the titular devil. He arms Jakob with a straight razor and sets him on a path of destruction. So Sam, when was the first time you saw The Devil and what did you think? Well, unfortunately, my story is going to be the same as my story for the third part of the night, <laughs> because the devil was also part of that series of restorations. And so my first time seeing it, I, I actually had gotten a hold of a bootleg that I was meaning to watch that looked absolutely terrible and had really bad subtitles. And it was announced that it was going to play as a restoration in New York. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to watch his bootleg. So my first experience was seeing it restored in a theater and my mind was blown. How about you, Kat? Yeah, it was one Christmas that my favorite time of year, cause it's the CG feed each. I don't know, maybe about eight years ago, something like that. I'd seen possession, but I hadn't really bought like a lot of people really hadn't really bothered, uh, finding any other Zhuowski films. I think just because they're, or worse, so under the radar. And I think it came up in one of my related, you know, you get recommended, you know, you might want to watch this. And I thought, that looks interesting. So I got a bootleg of it. And I just thought, this is fucking incredible. It's like a weird little gothic horror film. It wasn't what I was expecting at all. My only point of reference being possession. And this is like, uh, you know, set in the, when is it set? Is it the 1600s or 1700s? 1700s. It's period set. It's like got quite a lot of gothic elements. Kind of reminded me, actually, I think we talked about this on the episode of Wojciech Hass and the Saragossa manuscript, that sort of thing. I think that's the thing when you're discovering Jurowski, even though he has these same themes, every film is kind of unique as well, even though he tends to tell similar stories. So you never really know what to expect. I just thought this is great because I love Gothic. I love the whole period thing. And it just seems to me like one of those very strange, surreal Gothic stories that come out of Eastern Europe. Like That was my frame of reference for it anyway. And you've just got all these bonkers characters, like you've got orgies, like it's just got all the best stuff in it. And so many people laying in coffins. And lots of coffins, I mean, it's just great, isn't it? Hamlet? Hamlet's in here? <laughs> yeah, Hamlet's in here. We didn't talk about the man in the mask in third part of the night, and the man who comes in to see Mikael and... He's so ashamed that he's wearing this black mask over his face. And I love that Mikhail just calls him out at one point. It's just like, thank you, Mr. Rosencrantz. Yes. And I'm just like, okay, Rosencrantz. I'm immediately thinking Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And then, yeah, that we have Hamlet being played in here. I'm just like, okay, this is yeah, right there with it. And the way he comes across the traveling group of actors in the woods, I was so reminded of the beginning of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. We mentioned this when we were talking about third part of the night, but 
Of course, the devil was way too much for the censors. And before we get too far away from talking about Hamlet, and I forget to bring this up, something I did just want to mention is that especially in Eastern Europe, Hamlet, and this is true other places as well, but because Hamlet is a play that's all about sort of overthrowing a government and blackmail and murder and sort of state surveillance, political dissent, all of that, I think especially in Soviet Eastern Europe and Soviet Russia, Hamlet is usually, or at least at the time, was seen as something that was kind of a subtle way of talking about political dissent and a way at pointing out tyrants as being manipulative and tyrannical and responsible for things like murder and war. So it's it's almost like there's no way this film ever... It it just feels like such a provocation. I have to think that when he made it, he was just sort of like, well, fuck it, I'm going to make the film I want to make. And I mean, it, it sort of ruined his life for a few years because he had to separate from his wife and his child and go to to Germany and France and was sort of basically given a get out of jail free card, but was told you can't come back. Yeah. I think it's something he felt very bitter about because even though he made a lot of films in France, he never seemed happy about that. And he seemed to have, I mean, his films definitely get angrier. (laughs) Like after this, after silver globe, when he returned to Poland, like the film that broke his heart. But the devil is so angry. Yeah, the devil is really angry. But I wanted to say the idea of having actors in place, that's something else that he likes to do across the board, is have different medias, for want of a better word. So he'll have films within films or plays within films or he uses photography and as another device or things like Boris Goodenough is like an opera that's set like you see the audience and then you are in the film, but then you see the film. Like he would often do that, just bring it. And theatre seems to be a key theme in his work, that he'd like to have people doing theatre productions and especially Shakespeare. Well, even something like My Nights Are More Beautiful Than Your Days, one of the two main characters, she's not an actress, but she does these sort of like spectacular kind of medium performances at a nightclub. No Klaus Kinski in this Shakespeare, though. (laughs) Sadly, no. You talked about the Free Leech on CG, which I I think I also got uh, a copy of this from. Plus, I ended up buying this on DVD from Polarts. And the Polarts DVD, it just looks like a bootleg. It just absolutely, like the cover, the case, everything just looks like you bought it from a bootlegger of some renown rather than a professional company. And Sam, I am so jealous of you having seen the restored version of this because as I'm watching this version, it just looked nasty. So many scratches, so many times where things would cut off at real changes. Like there's a moment where the music is about to strike a really strong chord and it just cuts right off. I think it's at the end of like either the first or second reel. And it's just like, that's not how this was intended, I'm sure, because it makes Zulawski look sloppy and he is anything but sloppy. Yeah, that must be the same bootleg that I had downloaded because 
it was just like, this is already a very kind of frenzied, visceral, confusing film. And to watch it when you can barely see certain things, and like you said, certain things are cut off, it was just like, you know what, I'm gonna wait. But like, release the fucking restoration already, Jesus Christ. If this one was released on Blu-ray, this is the one I can see a lot of Eurocult fans, for example, being interested in this one, or people that are interested in just weird horror. If you look at it from a, like a market standpoint, I know it's a really weird, strange film, but it is possibly his most consciously gothic. And so there's a huge market out there to kind of draw people into Swarovski's films through this one, because it has things in it that are recognisably horror, like the coffins and parts of it feel like a non-sploitation film. Again, like using these weird, and I don't know how conscious he was of non-sploitation, but it was happening around the same time. But, you know, parts of it do feel like non-sploitation. You've got a possession uh, angle in there and the devil i mean it it has the potential to have a, a huge appeal compared to you know some of his later more romantic films that possibly you know if someone saw a trailer they might go over their head but this one has the potential to be a really big seller and it's just frustrating that the polish writers holders are kind of holding them to ransom and not letting them out all of these early films it's just frustrating the polish ones so third part of the night this one and silver globe as well it's just so fucking frustrating and they're definitely all the most genre it's it's funny but when i was re-watching the devil for this episode I feel like it would make a really good double feature with something like Moctezuma's Mansions of Madness. Yeah, same sort of thing, same sort of vibe, doesn't it? The madness and the costumes, and it just has that same sort of vibe. Well, and this one is much more straightforward as far as the timeline is linear, though we are being dropped into the middle of a story at the beginning of this, and so we are learning backstory about Jacob as we go throughout it. So we know some of his things, but then he's also learning things as we go through this as well. So we're learning about him. He's learning about himself. So he's coming home and finding that his father's committed suicide two weeks before. We're learning that he had been accused of regicide. So that's why he was thrown in jail. We learn and he learns that his mother is working as a prostitute. Yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite part. It's the best. <laughs> we learn that his betrothed is pregnant and about to get remarried and he actually witnesses the marriage and sometimes as i'm watching this and i'm sorry to be very reductive but as i'm watching the film and the devil characters are showing him all of these things i keep thinking about the spirits of christmas and just that Jacob is being forced to watch these things from the sidelines sometimes he's being kept out of the room when he sees his former fiance doing this weird dance that they're doing in this room when he's seeing them get married and he is powerless to stop it or at least that's how it feels and on their wedding night as well oh god yeah he's <laughs> there spying on them having sex and talk about hysterics i mean we talked about hysterical crying in the last one there's so much hysterical crying and so many fits people have 
fits like crazy where he will fall to the floor, Jakob, where his fiance will fall to the floor. People will fall to the floor and have these fits. And I think he has to have at least four or five fits in this film. Yeah, that was one of the things we talked about. When we podcasted about this movie a few years ago, we made a list, and I must still have it somewhere, but we made a list of all the things that you could have a drinking game about in this movie. People in coffins is one. People having fits is definitely another one of them. I'm somebody who usually buries or represses their feelings, and watching a movie like this, I'm like, why? I'm just going to start having fits like that all the time it goes back to what i was saying though the way he lets out emotion like even though you're you know because you're in that experience it feels like very cathartic you know when the fiance starts having a crazy fit quite early on it's inspiring you want to do the it same is. Thing. <laughs> it is because these people instead of just saying oh okay these bad things happened i guess i'm just gonna have to live with this Nobody in this movie, especially Jakob, it's like they're all like two-year-olds. It's if something happens they don't like, and often pretty horrible things happen, or they find out horrible things. <laughs> they're just like, they can't handle it, and so they have to have a meltdown. And my favorite is The Man in Black, which is Wojciech Soniak, who was a, a Vida, an Ange Vida regular, is so diabolical and delightful and you sort of get the sense after a point that he just wants to goad people into having fits and i'm pretty sure if i ever like came back as you know the the ghost of christmas past that's what i would be doing just goading people into having these like froth at the mouth fits (laughs) it's so funny no he totally is like the ghost of christmas past or or present or whatever but just this more sadistic evil version he's so evil because he's like look at the woman that you love here she is she's married this guy and now she's fucking him and, and look and, how pregnant she is in this, in this <laughs> yeah. really sinister way like you know but i'm helping you i'm your friend <laughs> and you just know that he's really getting off on like you know watching everyone's pain like not to jump ahead too much but the almost sexual assault nun scene where he's there creeping behind the tree just loving it and uh Jakob just freaks out and he's like go away <laughs> like you know because <laughs> he's literally feeding on it the whole time just feeding off this like you know people breaking down he's like some kind of vampire like a psychic vampire so much of this movie is him coming in saying, hey, here's this thing that you should know, and then <laughs> yes. setting him on his way, and then he'll always be where he shows up, where Jakob shows up. So it'll be like, I don't know how many days of journeying that Jakob is doing, but he's constantly running from here to here to here, and the devil's always there before he gets there. And it's just like, hey, nice of you to join me. Now, come on, let's take a look at this. Oh, this is your mother, and or, here are all these people in cages, or whatever he's doing. Here's this, uh, your sister and this guy and i'm guessing that the guy is Jacob's half brother because he's the one that tells him about the mother or oh god it's just here's this dwarf who's going to make fun of you through the entire movie and just be this constant source of irritation don't, don't even start don't, me on that yeah. <laughs> theodore is just and then you've got rhymes with third part of the night you've got theodore on a rocking horse and i'm like okay this is just like the son lukash in uh, third part of the night was riding a rocking horse i'm like what am i watching here this is just fantastic 
And the moment where I almost had a fit myself was after uh, his fiance, former fiance, has sex with her new husband, and she starts crying out, and he comes in, and he's been watching this. He comes, Jakob comes at her with a, a razor blade, and they both have this almost like interpretive dance of him <laughs> yes. wanting to kill her, and her kind of moving away and it's just like in slow motion them acting that way and then he puts the razor blade through his hand it's just that was the moment where i wrote down in my notes oh my god i love this movie i laughed so hard when i saw that in your notes (laughs) (laughs) these are the sorts of scenes that make his films especially the the sort the sort of more hysterical frenzied ones like this and like things in Lummer Brock, uh, you have to experience them for yourself. And it makes them really hard to analyze and break down in a, in a podcast or in an essay. But there also is that moment where you either are thinking to yourself, what is this? I'm really uncomfortable. I hate this. Or, and those people can all go live on an island together somewhere far away from me. Or you have that realization that you had where you're like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. What is happening? (laughs) Give me more. Well, the part when he goes back to his dad's house and finds out his dad committed suicide and his sister's sort of got low moral values. But the fact that, you know, there's this majestically dressed little person in the house and half of the house has disappeared and it's just things like that you're just like oh my god i don't know what this means but it's like the most amazing thing i've ever seen there's so much amazing and very very thoroughly eastern european use of surrealism that i know that you sort of compared him a little bit to fellini when we were talking about third part of the night but As much as the devil, and I totally agree with you that this is basically a gothic horror film or Zhuavsky's version of a gothic horror film, I think next to Boris Gudinov, this is also maybe his funniest film, but it's like extreme gallows humor where, yes, we are meant to experience Jakob's pain at losing his father, losing his fiance, losing his mother to her life of depravity and so on. This is the way I feel about it the more times I watch it, but I didn't necessarily think this the first time I saw the film. We're meant to identify with the devil, and we're meant to sort of be entertained and amused by how over-the-top all this fit-throwing is. Like, the scene where he climbs into the into the hole in the ground and, like, gets on top of his father's coffin. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> I, just, I can't. <laughs> If you were to just take this and boil it down to the simplest thing, it's man goes, meets up with people two or three times, and on the second or third time, murders them. Because that's what he does constantly. He'll he'll go and he'll visit this place. He'll go to visit another place. He'll go to a third place, go to a fourth place, run into these characters time and time again, and it always ends with him slitting their throats. He's basically, Jakob is basically a serial killer, and he's just being goaded on by the devil the whole time, just like, well, here's here's your fiancé. Isn't this bad enough? No, no, we're going to wait until this moment, and then he'll slit somebody's throat, you know? Or I think the fiancé gets off, quote-unquote, easy because she dies in childbirth. Which, he's really not kind to pregnant mothers in these first two films. You've also got the fact that his own mother tries to seduce him, which I just think is amazing. It's like the best scene. (laughs) 
Well, and then when he says her name, says mother, mother a couple times, she reaches down to her crotch like she's been stabbed. And I was just like, did he just use that straight razor on her? No. But she's heard enough somehow that she's using a cane the next time we see her. Yeah, there are things about this film that (laughs) you just, logic doesn't dictate them, which is why I love it. Well, that's why it reminds me of the Saragossa manuscript. It's in that same kind of tone, that same sort of Gothic tradition, very Eastern European Gothic tradition, that would often have very absurd elements and you would have moments of humour in it. It's kind of like our Gothic tradition, but then not because of the surreal aspect of it. And Saragossa manuscripts is where I was got moments of comedy in it and just this guy kind of meeting people and these things that don't seem particularly connected. So I think those two films would make a brilliant double bill. Something that we have to at least briefly mention, I know Daniel Bird isn't here, but I feel like he'll be mad at me if I don't bring this up because anytime I've... He doesn't listen to this podcast. Don't worry about That's it. That's true. Well, he's, he somehow knows telepathically <laughs> or will know if I don't mention this, but so this is set during this period basically of civil war, more or less. Not, not actually civil war, but Poland was at this point in the late 18th, early 19th century where they basically had come close to being one of the first European countries after France to pursue democracy. And pretty much the rest of Europe went, oh, fuck no, and occupied them in turn. So they were either being occupied or were at war with Germany or with Russia. And it just kind of goes on. And there's this period known as the partitions where from time to time, they're being occupied by different external governments. So it goes back to what we were talking about with Third Part of the Night, where, again, it's a film about war and occupation that doesn't beat you over the head with historical references, so it could be anywhere, anytime. But in Polish literature, in the early 1800s, not too long after these occupations began, uh, this Polish romantic poet named Mikiewicz wrote this play called Jadi. And Jadi is basically Poland's answer to gothic horror. And it has exactly the sort of thing you're talking about, Kat, where it is gothic, but it's like closer to that Eastern European tradition. Well, like it is that Eastern European tradition. And it's much closer to German romanticism than the English Gothic or anything like that. And German romanticism always has lots of guilt about some, some violence involving your family and ghosts coming back to torment you and lots of people being made to feel bad about things that they've done and sort of are driven to violence. Even though no one listening to this podcast really is going to care all that much about Jadi. I I feel like that's what he's referencing here. And Daniel will be mad if I didn't say that. There are moments that we get where the devil's talking about the partition. He talks about the Sijim, which I think was the Congress of Poland that they 
had agreed the, to the partition and that moment when the film begins pretty much in a convent, which again, we had a convent in the last movie, but begins there and the, um, it's either a convent or a prison. There are all these nuns around, but there are also a lot of men that are in cages at the same time. I think it's a prison and the nuns are sort of doubling as prison nurses. Part of their religious service is to care for these people. That's the way I interpreted it anyway. And at one point, the devil runs into a guy and starts speaking German, which at first I was just like, what the hell's going on? Because I thought it was Polish because I'm not that well versed until he said Dankeschein. I was like, oh, okay, this must be a German soldier that's here. Yeah. But yeah, we have soldiers throughout this movie, but they don't necessarily play into it. There's a moment where they're in the forest and there are some soldiers coming behind them. And then there are some other soldiers that are wearing these red hats. And I was just like, okay, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here, but it doesn't really matter because they're just in the background. It is such a, that is the background of the story. And it just plays so much into what you're talking about with the guilt and all these things. And I kept wondering how long had Jacob been in prison because it could have been, he could have been the father of this baby the father, his own father could have killed himself as soon as he got put into prison. There's this indeterminate time that he's been there. You talk about gallows humor. When we're introduced to Jacob, we're also introduced to his good buddy Thomas, but he doesn't, the devil says, no, no, I'm just taking Jacob and ends up shooting Thomas point blank. And then later on, he says, oh yeah, Thomas was killed. It happened right in front of my own eyes. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> it did. Yeah, it did, didn't it technically it? <laughs> did happen and he was not lying about that part. <laughs> The historical elements, though, are kind of, they don't really mean anything. I think he just uses that, even with the part of the night, even though he's telling his own family story, he's less interested in that and more about how he can explore these different feelings, like we were talking about before with the part of the night. Boris Goodenough's another one that he does it with, which is quite, because he didn't do a lot of period set stuff, which is a shame because I love, I love the devil. And I loved Boris Goodenough. And I, I, I never liked opera in my life, ever. But I was totally engaged with that film. There is naked opera in it. Yeah, there's naked opera, though. So, <laughs> and coffins. And, and giant cabbages. And, and people fighting with phallic-shaped breadsticks and stuff. So, Boris Goodenough is another one that I think it's had a French Blu-ray release, but it really needs just a wider release. I mean, I, yeah, I get it's a Russian opera, so maybe it's a hard sell, but it does make a good double feature with the devil in that they're both so completely batshit insane and wonderful. And weirdly, because there's a lot of like Russian history in it, but you don't really... Have care no <laughs> yes. yeah because it just becomes this like really absurd thing like mike said with these things happening in the background it just adds to the fact that you have a man being pursued which seems to be another theme that you like to pick up on people being pursued by something or trying to escape something which is something that he uses a lot in his earlier films they're either trying to escape a situation or escape this horrible landscape that they live in but everyone seems to be trying to get away from something you know even in possession you have you know there's the other plot in that where these weird spies are turning up and 
stuff. So that seemed to be another one of his key themes. So I think he, he kind of uses that, but it's so anti Catholicism and religion as well in a, in a wonderfully blasphemous way. I think was that when another one of the reasons why it just pissed the state off so much. Cause you know, the fact that we are supposed to, I guess, that, well, the devil seems to be the most entertaining character in it. Put it that way. <laughs> it, it's almost like, you know, we are not necessarily on his side, but like we were saying a, a, a minute ago, like we are laughing along with him in a way. Oh, absolutely. That part just feels really subversive. Yeah. And I, I do think. To steal one of your words, the subtext here is... Oh, oh I love subtext. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. absolutely love subtext. <laughs> I'm just not quite sure what it is. I know writers who use subtext, and they're all cowards. A lot of what's going on here that takes maybe two or three watches to catch up on is that a lot of it, there's this sort of like undercurrent of political dissent, which I think is what any of the historical context ties into. I mean, as you said, we don't really learn who these soldiers are fighting or if we're supposed to side with someone. They're just there to kind of add to this general atmosphere of chaos and instability. If the film, to me, has sort of an overall political theme, it's that occupation results in instability, violence, and madness, and everyone will be straight-razored to death. Well, it's like the Germans not really being identifiable Germans in the third part of the night. It's like you just have this just this sense of anarchy and, and danger that he just seems to have, oh, well, I'll set it here because there's a lot of unrest and then it becomes more about Jacob's story and what's happened to his family and the fact that everything's just gone to shit. You know, he walks back into this world and finds out that he's a murderer and his mum is a prostitute and his dad's dead and his sister's running wild and his woman is married someone else. So again, it's like this focus on a very personal personal story as well whilst he's making these other political observations tell me what the devil's doing in this film as far as that contract that he has him sign because the devil seems very concerned about pieces of paper you know the first time we see him he's like i've got these orders i've got these political prisoners i'm taking these political prisoners out and then he has Jacob sign this thing at the end and then he shoots Jacob point blank right in the face, but yet Jacob isn't dead and he crawls up that tree. That's the last time I believe we see Jacob, which is just really like, oh my God, what just happened? And then he takes this box with this piece of paper in it and takes it to this man. And I don't know who this man is supposed to be. And the guy's just like, eh, whatever. And it felt kind of like that whole like signing your soul over kind of thing. And I was just couldn't really figure out what was happening at the end of this well then he's a werewolf as well <laughs> he's like a bureaucrat werewolf rape and murder supporter when the man gives him some money and i'm like is this 30 pieces of silver is this what's happening here it has got like this real kind of judas ring to it that he's sold out for something sold out for some contract because he says to that guy you know i tried and 
it didn't work. But I think, again, it's just like one of these absurd things that Jowski likes to do to just convey these elements of, of power and how they fuck with people and how they fuck with people's lives. The way I interpreted it is that because he sort of agrees to collaborate with the man in black, it's this sort of gradual theme that collaboration is something that takes away your humanity and makes you more sort of animalistic. And that's, you know, the whole werewolf thing, animalistic and violent. And you stop caring about human concerns like love and family. And it's just sort of, he agrees to save himself and get out of prison. But, and I think you could definitely relate that to things that were going on in the seventies where, and and even in the forties under the Nazi occupation, where people would collaborate in what they thought were small ways where they're agreeing to do things to save their lives but I think what he's saying in a really sort of dramatic way is that one act of collaboration might seem okay, but it can quickly spiral out of control because you can never stop saying no. Well, I found it very interesting that Jacob says, I didn't give you any names. And that is always seems to be the thing that you want your prisoner or your person to give you the names of the other collaborators. Tell me who else you're working with. And he's just like, I didn't give you any names. The devil shoots him in the head and says how sad it is to be a toy in someone else's hands. Yeah, that probably put the censors into hysterics. Yes. <laughs> that line alone. I was glad, though, when the devil rips uh, little Theodore off of his horse and beats him to death with the, uh, <laughs> the box carrying the contract. <laughs> he's so distasteful. I hate that little man so much in this, just because he's always there just like, it was you, it was you. And that he's helping out carrying the the father to his grave by carrying a flag, thanks a lot. But then, I don't know, it's either him or the brother-in-law or the stepbrother, I guess it would be, that end up uh, digging up the father's corpse and setting it back in the house. There are so many fucked up things that happen in this movie, it's impossible to like anyone except for the devil. That's very true. I mean, there's the nun, the nun who was kind of defrocked and just is there for the ride. She is another sort of unpredictable figure. If there's any winners in this film, she's the winner at the end because she ends up killing the devil. I guess that's true. I wouldn't say they were winners. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, what is up with the man in the cage? The man who has that crazy, they're like these blue and red feathers on his shoulders. And then he also has these blue and red feathers right at his crotch. And the prostitutes seem to keep him as a toy in this cage and talk about how we can make him do whatever. We can make him have sex with whoever. They have this orgy scene. But then he manages to come back at the end and it's him and the nun who are there. He's kind of running around the nun as she's got the body of the wolf there or the dog that was the devil and like i would you could have bet me money watching this movie from the beginning i never would have picked those two characters being the last characters left alive the orgy scenes because to go back to fellini that's when it, it becomes like a carnival you get these like and he's often bringing these weird little 
characters. And I think this is the first film that he, where he truly does that, like dwarfs or, you know, pawn people or naked muscle men in little thong. He just do these weird, and, and he does it with this. It also kind of reminds me of Yan show as well. Things like Private Vices, but where you'd have these audio, and they're like Hungarian films that are kind of criticizing the state and that will make you go mad if you watch too many of them but the same sort of thing where you just have this like interpretive ensemble of people going insane and but with sex things in there as well so it's clearly not done for any erotic reasons because it becomes like that that whole thing the brothel you know is just amazing you've got those women dancing around on the lawn and then inside you've got these random figures who look like they're out of Fellini Satyricon or something just kind of while all this shit is going on outside this war and people are getting killed they just seem to be this like lost colony of decadence (laughs) who are like totally unaffected by anything else and you're just like what the hell is that about you know why have they got a sex slave and why not I also do think that is something that we haven't really had much of a cause to talk about yet is the way Zhuavsky handles sexuality, which is anytime it's explicit, it's always like anti-erotic. And when he has characters who experience erotic love for each other, their relationship is either we never see it consummated or the way they express their feelings is in a very non-sexual way. It's like physical, but not sexual. If I feel like you have to see it to kind of get what I mean. But whenever he has those sort of carnivalistic sex scenes or sequences like that, it's never erotic. It's always like you feel uncomfortable that most important thing to go back keep going back to that because it was the one that he did after this and it was his first french film so you can see what he carries over and what he doesn't so he drops a lot of the surrealism after that although he does have certain surrealism like possession for example is a very surreal film but he seems to drop a lot of it and he focuses more on these grotesque characters and on, on the emotional thing but that most important thing you have like because the what the main protagonist is a porn photographer so you get these very graphic porn shoots but they have things like uh muscle men dressed up in drag and just really bizarre thing. like it's almost like he's deliberately doing that you know um taking the erotic and just deliberately getting so i'm going to make it as as bizarre as i possibly can so it's just totally not erotic and there's an orgy scene in that film where everyone just looks really kind of pissed off like they don't want to be there everyone's miserable (laughs) and it's like oh they're wearing like really weird costumes and he kind of repeats that again something that he doesn't use an awful lot but when it comes up like more group sex situations it's always done in this really bizarre way it's how i would imagine fellini would have done it but and he was somebody who well he does in Casanova actually, you know Fellini's Casanova, which would have come out, you know slightly after this, where you've got kind of orgy scenes in that are just done in this very absurd way that they're just completely unerotic, but at the same time it's very sensual. 
It's hard to put into words. Feels very sensual, but it's not provocative. It's not sexy. It's not meant to be like titillating. Of course, with our main character being named Jacob, I kept thinking about Jacob from the Bible, and I just, I am not as familiar with Jacob's story as I probably should be, because it feels like Jacob had one heck of a life. Like looking him up in, uh, you know, Wikipedia, you know, source of all knowledge. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, this guy was doing everything, you know, but I'm trying to find like instances of him being tempted, him dealing with the devil. And the closest I get is him wrestling with an angel rather than him being tempted with all of these things or being this pawn of the devil. I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to say here with Jacob being named Jacob. Maybe he's just named Jacob. But then I also noticed that they refer to Ezekiel at another place. I'm like, okay, yeah, it really feels like, I mean, of course, if you're dealing with the devil, you're dealing with Christianity and those themes and coming hot on the heels of third part of the night being named after a passage in Revelation. It's like, wow, there's a lot of biblical things happening in these movies. Yeah, but I feel like he uses it more as a as a seasoning than as an actual like overall theme. He just is sort of sprinkling it in here and there. And I do really think that the devil is less supposed to be a religious allegory than it is a political one where sort of you're selling your soul, not in some sort of spiritual way, but in terms of what we were talking about earlier, where collaboration is all about, things that will lead you to this sort of state of degradation and damnation. Well, it's interesting you bring up the theme of temptation because in a typical sort of narrative, like something like to compare it to, it's like comparing apples and oranges though, but something like Alucarda, for example, which is more like non-sploitation, you would have a devil figure who would tempt the protagonist by offering them something. And in this, it's like the antithesis. He's not being offered anything. I mean, what he wants, basically, I think, is for his life to go back to how he remembered it. And everything is just changed. And so he's, like you said, goaded or tormented into selling his soul to get some sort of release from this like anguish that he feels because he doesn't really get offered anything <laughs> like he doesn't get offered any sort of prize he just he just seems to want to put things back to how they were and when he can't do that he has to kill the person because he can't deal with it so he's like i'm just gonna kill you and we're gonna forget that happened Ugh. and what is the thing too when he goes into the whorehouse on the last time, and he's asking his mother who pays her, and she says, someone pays. And I'm just like, oh, okay. And I kept thinking that that would take us to something bigger, like a larger conspiracy, but I'm not exactly sure what she was talking about. That's another one of those things where there's so much that happens here that suggests some kind of conspiracy, but he never spells out what it is. And I, I think it's just this idea of you have all of these different characters that in different ways are either sucked into some sort of political conspiracy or have agreed to be a part of these machinations, but we never figure out what they are. I think the purpose is sort of what we were talking about in our third part of the night discussion. It gives you this Kafka-esque sense that everyone's being controlled by something 
and nobody can really be trusted and there's someone or some multiple someone's pulling the strings and manipulating things. Okay, so it's kind of like the man with the pink socks from Possession. Yes, yes it is. And people seem to just be trying to survive or trying to get by in this war. Trying to find the new normal. Yeah, it's a weird kind of war, though, because, again, apart from at the beginning, you don't really see soldiers and stuff. They're more like agents, these weird agents or informers, or there's a lot of that going on. So it's similar to Third Part in the Night in that way. It's got that same sense of suspicion and paranoia. And this guy just seems to be thrown out of this prison into this whole world that's changed where he can't even trust his own family members. All right, we're going to take another break and we're going to play preview for next week's show. Let's go. Hurry up. It's not my fault. Just shut up and run. Hold it right there. Harry was a small-time crook. Oh, boy. Till he opened the door. Oh, no, no, we're not ready for your audition. Just take him, he's ready. You ready, right? To a really big break. Quit acting like the good guy. You got your partner killed. You killed him. See, this is what I'm talking about. Old school method. Get me Gabe Perry on the phone. But he'll need a real cop. Detective lessons tomorrow for your acting. Oh, you're the uh, consultant. If he wants to act the part. You must be Gabe Perry. Still gay? Me? No. I just like the name so much. I can't get rid of it. So what do you do? I'm a private detective. She thinks I'm a detective. Of all the idiot things to do. My sister. From Shane Black, the creator of Lethal Weapon. Do not play detective. Moron. Go home before the bad guys do something bad to you. Two corpses in three hours. I mean, that's unusual, right? Yes. Comes a mystery. It's a frame up. First things first. Do you have the corpse? I, I got rid of it. You threw it away. Yeah. Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No. The definition of the word idiot. Ow. It starts with a kiss. Why'd you lie to me? It was an excuse to stay around you, so I mean, I think... Ow! Did I just cut off your finger? Yeah. It's on the floor. Pick it up. Pick it up. And ends with a bang. Where is the girl? <laughs> You put a live round in that gun. Oh, yeah. There was like an 8% chance. Eight. Who taught you math? Harmony! Harmony! Robert Downey Jr. What do you think? I'm stupid? Val Kilmer. Yes. I think you're stupid. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Oh, hell. Kiss me. What? Kiss me. No, no, no. No, no, no. no. These lessons suck. That's right. We're back right in the middle of Polish month. We're going to be doing an episode on Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. This is indeed a disturbing universe. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and Sam. So, Kat, what is the latest with you, ma'am? Well, yesterday they finally announced the final specs on uh, Second Sight's Dawn of the Dead, and I did an essay for the booklet of that about a year ago and didn't actually realize that by the time they announced the specs we were actually living in dawn of the dead when they announced those specs so it's like weird weird times this is indeed a disturbing universe recently kino just announced a new noir box set and sam's also on that as well i did the lady gambles 
commentary on that and still working on Castro Bar. I'm determined that lockdown will get me to the finish line. Is that what we're calling it now? Lockdown? Yeah, that's what we call it here in the UK. <laughs> it's funny how everyone's forgot about Brexit, though. So at least we don't have to hear about Brexit anymore. And Sam, what's the haps with you? Kat and I did a commentary for American Tiger. Oh my God. Yes, we did. (laughs) Yes, we did. Written it down. Uh, Which was announced recently. This absolutely insane Sergio Martino sort of action fantasy movie about a a rickshaw driver in Florida (laughs) who gets like caught up in this plot orchestrated by diabolical donald pleasance who's a preacher you have to see it <laughs> it's amazing i we also did malabimba speaking oh my of, god yeah we did <laughs> speaking of euro horror which we did with heather drain which vinegar syndrome just announced uh, which just came out mostly i've been doing more sort of world war ii themed stuff for kino still working on my book I, I don't know. I, I've lost all sense of like time. Like March has just felt like it's gone on for a year. So I don't know what's been announced or what I can even talk about. <laughs> it's been so crazy this last month with everything changing. It's almost like I've just totally forgot about all the like my work. Like what <laughs> just doesn't, doesn't, um, we, oh, can I just say that we do have, a new episode of Daughters of Darkness on the way. And yeah, and we did uh, Barofczyk's Dr. Jekyll. So really excited to air that as well. Speaking of Polish directors who were forced to leave Poland because they misbehave too much. I've got a suggestion for you guys. When you have new things that are available, you should probably send out like blasts through, I don't know, Facebook Messenger or something. And just be like something to draw attention that it's your work. Maybe like title each one of them me 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 or something like that <laughs> that sounds good i'm gonna start a newsletter this is just called I, start I am fantastic <laughs> tag like everybody into it oh there you go this oh i love being tagged on facebook <laughs> oh there's nothing the only thing better than being tagged on Facebook is being tagged in Twitter because I can't figure out how to untag myself. I don't think you can I get tagged so much on Twitter in people's conversations. It drives me uh, crazy. And I don't know how to stop that. And so like you can mute it. Somebody's probably gonna write in now and go, No, it's really easy. You just <laughs> but it's like easy, somebody you idiot. <laughs> tag me in a photo of a film, like a poster or something, and then I get like forty uh, conversations oh my God, with people I, can't I don't stand even that. know. It's like, hello, who are you? Um, can I stop this? The worst ones for me are group messages via the DMs. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Why are you including me on this? I don't want to talk about James Bond films. What the fuck? Why would you even think I ever want to talk about James Bond movies? Leave me alone. <laughs> oh, oh, social dear. media. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionbooth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.